Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Listening to Justice, podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In this episode, I talk to Joanne Welsh, Chief Executive of the Oasis Project, who help women, children and families affected by drugs and alcohol. I talk to Joanne about the importance of a women-specific approach to substance misuse treatment and how the Oasis Project adapted their services during the pandemic. I'm Joanne Welsh and I'm the CEO of Oasis Project. And Joe, how long have you been at Oasis Project and what is it exactly? Uh, I've been at Oasis Project a long time. I've been there for around 13 years and Oasis is unique within um, the UK in that we take a women-specific approach to substance misuse treatment. So we were set up by um, a group of women who felt that their needs were not met in mainstream drug and alcohol services. So very much kind of a grassroots organisation 25 years ago. And we have a kind of whole portfolio of services that sit around those kind of uh, that women's substance misuse kind of aim. So we have a creche for babies from birth onwards and we have therapeutic services for children and young people who've been affected by parental substance misuse. We have services for sex workers. We deliver some specialist interventions for parents, both men and women, whose children have got child protection plans or involvement with uh, children's services as a result of their parent substance misuse. And we provide some services for people with complex needs. Oh, and we also work with women who've had a child removed in the past um, as a result of safeguarding concerns. You said earlier that with the women that you work with, that their needs weren't being met. What do you sort of mean by that? Can you paint a picture of kind of what that means and then what that might look like operationally for you? Well, I guess the most important thing to note as a starting point is that women are outnumbered in drug and alcohol services by men three to one. So they kind of uh, end up having a kind of focus on men's needs um, and where you see that quite often is when you're thinking about um, people who are involved in crime. So quite often um, people get into treatment because they've been picked up through a criminal justice route. 
And we know that women's offending is not the same as men's. But in terms of our kind of model of supporting having a, a women-specific building and a trauma-informed approach, um, a l- the vast majority of the women we work with will have experienced domestic and sexual violence, um, either as adults or children or both. So in order to kind of do some of the work that's um, required to, to kind of help you recover from substance misuse problems, I would say a prerequisite is that women feel safe, that they're able to be vulnerable, they're able to talk about some of their past that's perhaps led them to using drugs and alcohol um, and some of what's happened to them while they've been using. And I would, you know, really advocate for it's not especially a safe space for women to be doing that with men who are also in early recovery. You know, we know some things about men with drug and alcohol problems, but we also have to sort of think about it's bringing together men and women who are both in early recovery. And I don't think that's um, a good model for treatment services. And I guess just more practically, we know a lot of the women that we work with are single parents and often don't have a lot of what we would kind of call social capital. So they don't have a lot of family support. They don't have a lot of resource that might help them perhaps care for children while they access treatment. So there's just a practicality as well around childcare support. So we try to kind of think about those practical issues that impact more on women and just have a whole kind of lens in which we look at things through which is women focused rather than the default position which is a men's focus. Is there an argument to say that later on down the line that the groups can be mixed or does it really depend on what's happened to those women in the past and whether it's appropriate does it always have to be quite bespoke? Mm. Um, I mean there is an there there is an argument isn't there I mean I guess you know one one argument is that you know people live in the world where men and women in general have to mix together but I mean one of the things that you know people in early recovery are kind of vulnerable to is some of the work is not just about stopping using drugs it's about looking at a whole way of kind of being and a lot of that is is relational based. A lot of it is about kind of positive friendships and how you navigate those. And, you know, we all know, don't we, that relationships are difficult and they're difficult to manage. And when relationships are kind of going wrong, you know, that's potentially a trigger for like using substances again. So there potentially is kind of, you know, positives about um being in, in groups together but there's a lot to kind of think about around those relationships and a lot about how you think about when people are ready and a lot about thinking around what the kind of impacts might be if if people kind of um sometimes what gets talked about is like fixing your feelings with other things like rather than getting to the root of what your problems are and noting that in the past you've probably fixed them with drug and alcohol, there's a potential temptation to fix them with new relationships that then, should that new relationship go wrong, then, you know, leads you kind of quite vulnerable to sort of relapsing. We bring a particular women's perspective to that, but I suppose it's also worth knowing that, and and we're not... um, 
we're not a 12-step or abstinence-based organisation. But it is worth noting that the 12-step fellowships like Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous also kind of have a principle that men support men and women support women. So although their meetings are mixed, if you're looking for a sponsor, the fellowships will say you have a sponsor of the kind of same sex. They don't advocate kind of early mixing. And there's a bit of a um, kind of slightly jerky thing that goes around the fellowships about the 13th step. So you know there's 12 steps in recovery with that, with the, the fellowships, AA and NA, etc. And people talk about the 13th step is having a relationship with somebody else who's in the fellowship. And, um, you know, somebody said, yeah, we have women-only groups, so we don't have to do the 13th step. Right. <laughs> So you mentioned the women-specific building. What do you mean by that exactly? So um, it's a women-only space. We have an all-female staff team. And um, so all the women who are delivering this, all, all the staff who are delivering the support are women. And um, the building that we work from is women-only as well. I guess just to add to that, though, um, because... On occasions, you know, I, I meet other services who do sort of say, oh, yes, we've realised we need to do something and we're going to have a women's group on a Tuesday night. But I suppose there's a whole kind of um, approach and training and a kind of value base around working with women that isn't just about saying, let's do something for the women on a Tuesday and we'll let them come through a back entrance and we won't have any men in the building. It's much more about a whole approach and an understanding of what um, issues women face that are kind of different to men. And I mean, I think most people would agree that women who used drugs um, are much more stigmatised than men. And I think you see that particularly around um, parenting. So quite often men who've had problems in the past with drugs and alcohol could kind of, you know, brush that off as a bit of a misspent youth or, you know, when they were a bit of a lad. But it's very difficult to kind of um, frame a narrative around having lost your children um, and, and um, you know, being seen to be somebody who wasn't able to care for their, for their children. Yeah, and do you find that most of the women that come to you, are they the primary carers of children, overwhelmingly? Yes. And they still have the children with them, do they? Um, so, now, we, we do have a specific programme that is for predominantly women, although we do deliver it to a few men. Um, so we have a specific programme we deliver to women whose children are open to children's services. So that accounts for quite a lot of our work because we get referrals in that way. And they, by and large, do have their children with them. But we also do have a sizable cohort of women who don't have their children living with them. And I guess when you think about the fact that people can stay in treatment for a really long time, that we've got people who their drug use and, and their needs in general have become much more chronic. So... They may have lost their children and, in fact, then their problems become worse because of the impact of that loss as well. So they were already often, they'd already often had a history of trauma and neglect and 
um, abuse and then they may well lose their children and you know it doesn't take uh, you know anybody with a lot of great deal of understanding to realize that that then has a as a you know further kind of negative impact on them and their chances of recovery yeah and and what sort of drugs are you seeing the women particularly taking and how has it changed maybe over the last couple of decades and then subsequent questions that would be how long do you have people in treatment for with you and what's the optimum sort of time? So the the kind of um, drug that most people in treatment, um, men and women, would be in treatment for is heroin. But that is pretty much based on the fact that that's how services are very much seen. So, um, you know, and it's probably more of a driver for people to access treatment. You know, if they uh, have got a heroin problem, they will experience kind of physical withdrawals, so may well be motivated to access treatment as a route to get um, opiate substitute like methadone. I mean, methadone's the one that everybody knows. So that's often a bit of a, a push factor into treatment in a way that the other drugs perhaps don't have that push factor and they're just not seen. I think people who have other, are dependent on other drugs, perhaps don't see substance misuse services as being somewhere that they fit particularly. I mean, I guess the other thing to say though about heroin use is it generally goes alongside polydrug use. You don't generally just see somebody who says heroin is my drug and that's all I use. And there's often, you know, use of benzodiazepines as well, um, other kind of misuse of prescription drugs. And then, um, you know, some use of crack cocaine as well amongst that cohort. I mean, there's probably a whole kind of hidden cohort of people who are misusing prescription drugs and painkillers that right. would never kind of think about approaching a treatment service for. And do services uh, reflect that or not really? Do they reflect polydrug use? People do understand the kind of complexity of, of substance misuse. Um, now, what I can say, because the report was launched last week, is there's re- recently been a report undertaken by Professor Dame Carol Black um, over the last couple of years that's looked at issues in treatment services in this country. And... Um, I, I'm pretty sure it's a quote from from Dame Carroll to say that treatment services are on their knees. So whilst I would say to you, uh, you know, we do take a holistic approach and we like to look at, you know, people in the round, their mental health, what's going on for them with other aspects of their health and social care needs, housing, etc. That has to be framed in the context of, um, you know, a decreasing amount of funding over the last 10 years, uh, an increase in demand and an increase in things like homelessness and poverty. So so there is a kind of, you know, we, we know a lot about what works. We know how to treat people well, but we haven't necessarily had the resources over the last five, 10 years to, to deliver that kind of really effective model of support that we we know would um, increase people's chances of uh, recovering and having a meaningful, healthy life. 
Right. And we always know that money is sort of one aspect of it. And we hear a lot on these podcasts, actually. Um, you know, we know what the problem is. We know what the answers are. It's just me trying to get to a place where we can sort of action those sort of solutions, I guess. So if money's money's always an issue, that's one thing. What are the other things that are the big issues facing your sort of area mm. of expertise? I just backtrack a bit, actually, because you did ask me as well about, you know, what are the things we see the most of in treatment? And, of course, the other thing that is probably half of what we see women present with is problems with alcohol. And um, that is hugely on the rise. And um, I think we've seen that as kind of cutting much more across... Um, you know, the whole kind of uh, society. Um, so, you know, that's that's not really that much of a surprise, is it? Alcohol is freely available and not stigmatised. So we certainly are seeing that. And that would also be borne out with the children that we see for therapy as well, that they're probably half kind of living with parents with alcohol problems. So the money... So if money money is one of the big challenges that always face everybody when they're talking about, you know, how they could change things, what are the other things that, you know, if you had that magic wand, what would you like services to look like? Well, I, I can't resist the opportunity to say around money, we don't really need the magic wand, do we? Because, you know, the majority of women in prison will have drug and alcohol problems and what do we pay for a woman to go to prison? About £56,000 a year, um, which if you gave me £56,000 for one woman's drug treatment, <laughs> you know, it's just an extraordinary sum. I, I can't even put into kind of um, uh, words what a, what a significant difference that would mean if that money was in treatment rather than in prison. Um like, yeah, there we go. We're, we're creating more prison places, aren't we? So, so. Well, exactly. Which slightly um, flies in the face. What about accommodation? What's the issue yeah. around accommodation? Because I also realise that some women might have a roof over their head, but it might not be a safe one or certainly not a place that you can get better in. Um, I mean, housing is, is, is variable across the country, really. I mean, obviously, in Brighton and Hove, we have real problems around housing. Um, and that does result in a real feeling of insecurity. Um, and, you know, I guess just those kind of pressures to be dealing with life and not the best conditions to be trying to recover from substance misusing. So we talk about... Um, you know, increasing people's social capital. So looking at things like, um, uh, you know, positive kind of friendship networks, positive kind of support from the community, which is often really lacking, um, often because people have become estranged from their family and friends because of their use or because it wasn't ever there in the first place. You know, we, we do need to kind of remember that lots of people who we treat, seen treatment have also been through the care system as well. So they, you know, they didn't necessarily have that positive kind of social network to start with. Um, there's definitely something that sometimes also feels quite controversial, but I don't think it is around, particularly for women, around um, kind of positive social roles 
So um, work, volunteering, you know, that there are routes for women out of treatment. Um, A woman said to me years ago, you know, I I used to be a single mum who stayed at home, had no money and used drugs. And now I'm a single mum who stays at home with no money and don't use drugs. So there needs to be something like positive that is put in place. It can't just be, I gave something up. There has to be kind of... And that often is kind of quite a, a challenge. Uh, yeah, to think like, what might that be? You know, often women have spent, they've gone from school to a relationship to a child um, and not had that sort of opportunity for self-determination or self actualization. So we do cover things uh, within our our structured treatment programs, we deliver psychosocial interventions. And some of that is where we talk about relationship support and um, we deliver some other kind of um, interventions alongside our core program. So we deliver Mellow Parenting, which is an attachment-based parenting program. And we've just been delivering with funding from Public Health England, a parental conflict project, which is a sort of new emerging kind of field looks at uh, kind of not domestic violence level um, relationship support, but very much kind of how do you resolve conflict in relationships so that you can be kind of a better parent. Um, We do a lot of work that is about women getting in touch with who they are and what they want and thinking about, you know, what somebody might be offering to them in a relationship and whether that's what they want. And I think it sort of relates a little bit back to what I said before, which is perhaps if you've got other positive relationships in your life and more of a positive identity and, you know, you feel like you've got other outlets, the relationships don't become quite so important. Yeah, exactly. And is your um, organisation residential or not? No, we're not residential, no. Um, funnily enough, over the years, we've kind of gone backwards and forwards about residential. Um, there are some good kind of residential options, actually, in Brighton. We're quite fortunate in that there's a couple of um, other charities who have sort of good provision around residential support um, and it's, you know, it's been quite a difficult model over the years. There have been some women-specific residential treatment options that have kind of gone by the way because it's quite an expensive resource and they've not been utilised as much as they could be. It will be interesting because the new, the report that I just referred to, the Dame Carol Black report, does talk about an increase in need for residential rehab uh, and for more kind of inpatient detox as well. So a greater role for the NHS who've kind of retreated from drug treatment over the last kind of 10, 15 years. And is that due to sort of just huge growing demand? I mean, because I suppose the NHS can do so much, can't it? But then actually, can it be picking up all these specialised areas and, and should they be doing that? Uh, well, um, I mean, this kind of comes down to kind of what lens do you see substance misuse problems through? Do you just see it as it's a chronic illness? And if it's a chronic illness, why is it not being picked up? Like we deal with diabetes or cancer 
Um, and, you know, that's really interesting to start to think about the stigma that is attached to substance misuse because in no other area of health would we tolerate people dying so young from something that we know is treatable with so little focus and attention when we know what interventions would make a difference. But we've, we've, we, I say we as a society, have tolerated an increase in drug-related deaths over the last 10 years um, with seemingly kind of no focus on that at all outside of, you know, people who is very much their focus. And, I mean, even the kind of launch of this report last week, I don't think it was covered at all on the mainstream news. No, I have to say I didn't see it being talked about anywhere and I'm a fairly ferocious consumer of the news. Yeah, and, we're, you know, we're talking about a huge social issue. We're talking about people dying very young who've already experienced a lot of disadvantage. We're talking about, um, you know, something that has an impact on serious um, organised crime, violence, children being taken into care, yet there's very little focus. And that's that seems to me really clearly because it's about stigma and blame. Right, yeah, I was going to ask what the reason would be to sort of duck it and not talk about it when it's, you know, problems with homelessness. But as you say, it's not just the low socioeconomic groups that run into trouble with this. This is a classless problem. Um, It's just in the upper classes. It might be champagne and cocaine and then it might be something else when it's sort of on the streets. So I wonder whether it's just because it's so normal and so, I don't know, so common. Is that why it's being ignored? Or is it too much of a problem for the government to actually deal with? I mean, although although addictions could cross all of society, I mean, you do see kind of quite often people who are at the very high end have problems with addictions, don't they? And of course, you know, people in music business and you know, film industry, we've seen drug-related deaths in that kind of cohort. But predominantly, it does affect disproportionately people who are already disadvantaged. And I think there's a huge amount of blame that goes along with it that people are seen as kind of um, engaging in something that they choose to do. You know, they make, they've made a poor choice as opposed to they are experiencing a chronic um, health issue. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's at the root of it, really, that people are very stigmatised, that, that it is seen as something that people should be blamed for. And what's your um, opinion on sort of the substitute drugs like Subutex and methadone? Is it ethical to sort of park people on sort of methadone? Or what's what's the view on that these days? I mean, if we if we look at uh, drug treatment and supporting people with addictions very much through that sort of lens of public health and health and health inequalities, there's a real role to play around kind of harm minimization, supporting people into treatment, providing some stability in their life. Um, and methadone and other opiate substitutes have really got a role to play in that. They do make a really significant difference in cutting down things like bloodborne viruses, risk of overdose, just introducing a bit more stability, bringing people into contact with treatment services. 
Um, we have got a lot of people in this country who have been on um, opiate substitute prescriptions for a long period of time. And the evidence kind of says that, you know, there is an optimum amount of time to be in treatment. And that's probably about 18 months to two years. Um, there are some people who would argue that having a, a prescription um, for the rest of your life has a lot of health benefits and it shouldn't be looked at any differently to how other chronic conditions are managed by medication. Um, as I say, we're not an abstinence-based organisation, but I don't think that most people, when they come into treatment, have a have you know that their kind of ultimate goal is to be on a prescription for a long time. Um, but I think if we are going to kind of optimise people leaving treatment off any medication and not kind of using then we need to kind of put a lot more intensive support in at an early stage when people present as being very kind of motivated and wanting things to change. It gets much harder the longer a problem's gone on for and the more people feel like I've kind of done treatment. But there's health benefits all the way along, really, from, from having um, a script of what you you know a medication where you know what it is that you're getting um so um but yeah i mean it, it, it is interesting because politically there are also a lot of opinions around treatment and um and you know you do see that to some extent in other illnesses don't you there's a slight kind of blame attached to people who are obese and there's a bit of a blame attached then to type 2 diabetes and did people bring that on themselves because they've got an unhealthy lifestyle um when you look at a lot of illnesses there's an element of kind of behavior that went along with it including things like you know skiing injuries and sports injuries um Absolutely. But do you find with the sort of, you know, with the chronic stuff, you know, whether it's chronic obesity or chronic anorexia, well, anorexia is chronic, but um, you know what I mean? You know, it comes back to what we talk about in One Small Thing, my organisation all the time, which is, you know, what is actually going on? And I noticed on your website, it says a similar thing, treat the person, not the problem. Because, mm. you know, obviously what someone's presenting with is one thing, but then actually what's going on inside them, they might not even know themselves. And it might have been a trauma that happened to them so young that they don't remember and they can't articulate it. Um, mm. And I mm. think I would imagine that that's the key, isn't it, with mm. any of these services to try and get to that point, that mm. point where something yeah. happened. Yeah, I was reading something yesterday that talked about, it, it, it was about children and, um, you know, risk to children. And it talked about, the underlying issues and I think they were reading the underlying issues as substance misuse but I was almost thinking what's the underlying issue for the substance misuse which is often kind of early trauma um, and neglect and you know everything so the underlying it's interesting how far you go on the underlying isn't it yeah, and I'm always amazed at how there's a lack of going back so far when it's like, well, the problem is the drug problem. And it's like, no, what is causing the drug? You know, and it's amazing to think that services still just stop there. 
and just say, well, that's problematic oh. behaviour and don't sort of say, why is that problematic behaviour actually there? Um, mm, mm, because it strikes yeah. me as though that's quite a sort of obvious obvious thing to do. But mm. um, And what led you into this type of work? Because, you know, it's always interesting to hear how and why people do the things that they do. Mm. So um, I, I'm, I'm a nurse, I still am a nurse, which people often find that kind of, they can't quite grasp that you can be a nurse and um, working in a kind of senior management position. I, I trained as a nurse in the late 80s. And then I've always kind of worked, I, I moved to London and worked in HIV nursing when people with HIV were still kind of very ill, sort of pre the effective drug treatments. So I've always been kind of drawn to areas of health around health inequalities and perhaps where there's been quite a lot of stigma and prejudice. And I've kind of, you know, I've done other things in the interim. I've worked in sort of more policy areas in healthcare um, and health improvement type roles. But um I like working with people, you know, even though I'm CEO, the creche is underneath my office. Um, I see the children come in. I know some of the children's names and I can sort of see when people are doing, you know, doing really well. And that's really nice to see. And um, I, I mean, I didn't, you know, feel like I had a burning desire to work in a women's organization until I did it and now I feel even more passionate about um you know the need for women specific services and what women can deliver when they're when they work sort of together um and you know challenging the kind of status quo in some ways and being an advocate for people who often are not advocating for themselves you know I mean I've had that said to me over the years kind of well women don't particularly want a women only service which you know I would imagine the vast majority of our women are not ever going to be out campaigning saying get us a women only drug treatment service but it's also kind of people don't really know what they need either until they've received it Exactly. I was just going to say that sometimes you're not always in the best position to know what's good for you. Mm, mm, yeah. And I think, you know, then people really, a lot of women, you know, say things that are slightly backhanded compliments like, oh, I never thought I wanted to be with a group of women. You know, I didn't think I really liked that until I came here and I've realised what I've got from sort of sharing, being with other women who are parents and have faced a lot of judgment and... Yeah. And I wonder whether it works um, the same for men in a sense that I imagine the single sex male groups would work better when maybe they're not. I'm not saying that all men show off to women, but there's just that different dynamic, isn't there, um, Mm. that might creep in when the opposite sex is in the room. And I would imagine they'd be more successful. I I wonder um, whether it's easier for the women when they're together in a group to be vulnerable than it is for the men to be vulnerable, even if it is just them. I suspect that's the sort of positive thing about uh, being female, that there is an ability then to sort of 
yeah, share things and be vulnerable that perhaps isn't there for the men. How have things been for you during the pandemic? We're now sort of a year and a half in, aren't we? And have you been able to keep your services going or how has that manifested for you? Yeah, so um, we uh, kept our crèche open throughout. So, um, because we realised right from the start that our families would be under so much extra pressure. So we kind of, the crèche kept going. All our children's therapeutic services, we pivoted kind of overnight, either by phone or um, digital. And according to kind of like, the children's living circumstances, but also their developmental age as well. So some children didn't have their own bedroom. So, you know, some children are only five. They can't really do a telephone kind of therapy session. But we just tried to make sure that everybody had something that would be supporting them and just picking up really on the tensions that were there for families. And some of it was really scary you know we had a lot of staff who were working at home and were also single parents who were dealing with people who were suicidal um people who were kind of literally at the end of their tether with with children um but we you know the staff team did an absolutely amazing job they really did i staff who you know took food parcels around walked around brighton delivering food um we were really fortunate in that we were successful in a bid to Barclays uh, really early on, which allowed us to get um, a huge amount of digital tech to distribute to our client group. So we were able to sort of distribute lots of tablets and some laptops and phones and data because we knew that lots of our families would be digitally excluded. So that was great to be able to do that so that then we could have groups via zoom we did assessments by telephone um and i suppose the sort of saddest thing about it all is we saw a huge increase after the first lockdown ended um we saw 300 percent increase in new alcohol presentations wow 300 percent and is that common, would you say, nationally, or do you not know? Because you're talking about the people being yeah. referred to you, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know how much it is. I think generally in the media there's an acceptance that there's been a deterioration in in um, or, or an increase in problems. And I guess just, um, you know, all of us living through that, there was such a lot of um, kind of comedy you know, sort of, ha, 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 let's get the wine out, you know, homeschooling kind of, um, which is a bit of a bugbear we've got in general about the whole kind of why mummy drinks, gin o'clock type um, merchandising that's like, you know, you're going to buy your mum some card for Mother's Day. You know, that's kind of ha, 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 mummy with a... You know, I I even noticed it on Sunday night all around the football that there seemed to be a general consensus that everybody on Monday morning would be hungover. Yeah, and that no one would be in work and that, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's a bit like this sort of, um, you see it with violence against women and then if you go back down the spectrum of violence, you're talking about everyday sexism and the 
sort of misogyny and the kind of sexist jokes. And it's like, well, that's harmless, isn't it? It's all just a bit of banter. But then, of course, when you get to the more extreme end of things, it's usually those men who have got to that extreme end. It started with the stuff on the lower end of the spectrum. And it's really interesting then when you start putting that lens onto other problems. And it's the first time I've really thought about it with alcohol because, you know, I did the same thing. I was like, my God, I've got three children that I'm like homeschooling and I'm doing a job and I'm doing a master's and where's my gin? Um, You know, and you do and you talk to your female friends about it particularly and it's like, oh, did you have a drink? You know, again, it's that sort of, it's so normalised in our society, isn't it? But it's become normalised quite quickly, hasn't it? Because it wasn't that kind of normalised in the 70s that mums needed a drink at five o'clock. I mean, certainly there was a lot more of a drinking culture around men, wasn't there? But there wasn't that kind of gin o'clock and that's why mummy drinks. This is all kind of quite a new... Yeah, that's an interesting one to ponder. I mean, we've been doing a a project, which is a national project as well, in um, Brighton and Hove around trying to improve support for children of alcoholics. And one of the things that's come up a lot there that I have kind of talked about quite a lot is why do, I mean, luckily COVID's ended this, but all our um, staff who've got children in kind of quite early year schooling have talked about presence of alcohol at PTA events. Um, you know, why Why is there alcohol in schools? You know, why is it if you go to like a child's nativity play that there's alcohol there? Yeah, I've often thought about that because you're usually driving home as well. Yes. <laughs> so it's even weirder because, you know, yeah. with my yeah, with my children, I've thought about exactly the same thing. And so I say there's so many non-alcoholic um, beers and drinks on the market. I've always wondered why we don't have just non-alcoholic beers. And non-alcoholic yeah. cocktails on sale because that'd be much more useful because a hundred percent of people basically at that event are driving. Instead, we're telling children, aren't we? We can't sit through a nativity play without a glass of prosecco. Yeah, interesting. Really important sort of to be thinking about um, all those messages. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Um, well, listen, it's been so fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review, and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for one small thing by the London Podcast Company.